0: Ted Hughes' book called More Town Diary*, his book of uh, farming poems, is one of my favorite books of poetry by anybody, and it's one of the first books of poetry that I read on this podcast. And I'd like to take advantage of the chance to just re-record my selections from it, add a few new poems to it, as well as audio from Hughes himself, as well as uh, some remarks of Hughes that I will. Just be reading myself from this incredible uh, collection of poetry. The first thing is just this small remark from Hughes himself in the preface to the book that he added, I believe, in the late 1980s. He says, In the early 1970s, my wife and I bought a small farm just north of the northern edge of Dartmoor, in what is generally known as North Devon, and farmed it in partnership with, with her father, Jack Orchard, to whom I have dedicated this book. He was a retired farmer whose family had farmed in Devon for generations. My own experience of farming had previously been limited to playing and working on farms in West and South Yorkshire when I was a boy, just failing to buy a farm in Australia when I left university. And since then, rearing the occasional bullock or two, and indeed, if you read his biography or his letters, you wonder just how different his life would have been if he had bought that farm in Australia just when he left university. And he goes on to say, my mother's mother's family had farmed in West Yorkshire, so I always heard the common saying, back to the land in three generations, with a cocked ear. However it was, when the opportunity to buy a farm suddenly came, I took it. We had no idea what an interesting moment we had chosen. Even then, in the early 1970s, the ancient farming community in North Devon was still pretty intact and undisturbed, more so than anywhere else in England. And so with that, let's read the very first poem from the book which is simply called Rain. This is a wonderful, as wonderful an opener to a collection of poetry as I know. Tell me if you don't just come out of this poem soggy and covered in mud. Uh, This is Rain. Rain floods frost, and after frost rain, dull roof drumming, wraith rain pulsing across purple bare woods like light across heaved water, sleet in it, and the poor fields, miserable tents of their hedges, mist rain off-world, hills wallowing in and out of a grey or silvery dissolution, a farm gleaming, then all dull in the near drumming, At field corners, brown water, backing and brimming in grass. Toads hop across rain-hammered roads. Every mutilated leaf there looks like a frog or a rained-out mouse. Cattle wait under blackened backs. We drive post holes. They half-fill with water before the post goes in. Mud water spurts as the iron bar slam burns the oak stake head dry. Cows, tamed on the waste, mudded like a rugby field, stand and watch, come very close for company in the rain that goes on and on and gets colder. They sniff the wire, sniff the tractor, watch. The hedges are straggles of gap, a few haws. Every half-ton cow sinks to the fetlock at every sliding stride. They are ruining their field, and they know it. They look out sideways from under their brows, which are their only shelter. The sunk scrubby wood is a pulverized wreck. Rain riddles its holes the drowned roots. A pheasant, looking black in his waterproofs, bends at his job in the stubble. The mid-afternoon dusk soaks into the soaked thickets. Nothing protects them. The fox corpses lie beaten to their bare bones, skin beaten off, brain and bowels beaten out. Nothing but their blueprint bones last in the rain, sodden soft. Around their hay racks calves stand in a shine of mud. The gateways are deep obstacles of mud. The calves look up through plastered forelocks without moving. Nowhere they can go is less uncomfortable. The brimming world and the pouring sky are the only places for them to be. Field fairs squeal over, sodden toward the sodden wood. A raven, cursing monotonously, goes over fast and vanishes in rain mist. Magpies shake themselves hopelessly, hop in the spatter. Misery. Surviving green of ferns and brambles is tumbled like abandoned scrapyard. The calves wait deep beneath their spines. Cows roar, then hang their noses to the mud. Snipe go over, invisible in the dusk, with their squelching cries. And that poem is dated December 4th, 1973 and it's good uh, the dates on the poems are a good way to talk about the weird publication history that the book had Uh, as we'll hear later Hughes didn't really think that he would do anything with these poems he considered them more of a personal monument to his father-in-law and sort of wanted to keep them private but then um, he had the opportunity to have some poems published and uh, one of the poems that I'll be reading later uh, was the one that he selected. And it turned out then that, let's see when it was, in 1978, he published a book privately in less than 200 copies called More Town Elegies. And uh, he seems to have gotten used to seeing these poems in print because the next year, uh, through Faber, there was a collection published that was just called Moretown which included the more town diary poems as well as poems from four other collections. So that these farming poems were sort of, um, sort of surrounded by all this other stuff uh, so that it possibly became a little hard to see what an achievement it was. And it wasn't until 1989 that the poem was published or that the sequence was published by Faber in a major collection, again, as a separate collection, Um, with the dates added and with the comments that I'll be reading from him added as well. An introduction and then notes to some of the uh, poems. Uh, Hughes, for reasons of his biography that most of you will be familiar with, uh, had a hard time quite understanding what he was able to do, and after he did it, quite what he had been able to achieve. And I think that's especially the case. Um, with these town poems, where he didn't quite know what to do with them. They were private, they were published, then they were published privately, and then they were published in the middle, sandwiched between these other collections. They were completely unlike it, and only later were they given their own space with dates and commentary. Uh, There's a sense that even a great poet can maybe not know quite what he has and quite what he's done, and how it is that he should give it to the world. And I take uh, a, a sort of comfort from that. Let's check out another poem here. And this is called, this is one that I did not read the first time around when recording an episode of these poems. So I'm happy to read it here for the first time. This is called bringing in new couples, wind out of freezing Europe, a mean snow fiery cold use caked crusty with snow their new hot lambs wet trembling and crying on trampled patches under the hedge twenty miles of open lower landscape blows into their wetness the field smokes and writhes burning like a moor with snow fumes lambs nestling to make themselves comfortable while the ewe nudges and nibbles at them and the numbing snow wind blows and the blood tatters at her breached back end the moor a gray sea shape the wood thick-fingered density a worked wall of whiteness the old sea roar sheep shout lamb wail red wings needling invisible, a fright smoking among trees, the hedges blocked, lifting of ice-heavy ewes, trampling anxieties as they follow their wide-legged tall lambs, tripods craning to cry, bewildered. We coax the mothers to follow their babies, and they do follow running back in sudden, convinced panic to the patch where the lamb had been born, dreading she must have been deceived away from it by crafty, wolvish humans, then coming again, defenseless to the bleat she's attuned to, and recognizing her own, a familiar detail in the meaningless shaped mass of human arms, legs, body-clothes, her lamb, on the white earth held by those hands, then the vanishing again lifted, then only the disembodied cry going with the human while she runs in a circle on the leash of the cry, while the wind presses outer space into the grass and alarms rends deep in brambles with hissing fragments. Of stars and that poem is dated 16th of February 1975 it's worth let's see here let's read one more poem and then get the Hughes's comments on them this is a, a poem called surprise and it says Looking at cows in their high, roofy, roomy, windy home, mid-afternoon idling, late winter, near spring, the fields not greening, the wind northeast and sickening, the hay shrinking, the year growing, the parapets of toppled hay, the broken walls of hay, the debris of hay, the piece of cattle Mid-afternoon, cud munching, eyelids lowered. The deep platform of dung, looking at cows sharing their trance, it was an anomalous blue plastic apron, I noticed, hitched under the tail of one cow that went on munching with angling ears. A glistening, hanging sheet of blue-black, I thought of aprons over used back ends to keep the ram out till it's timely. I thought of surgical aprons to keep cleanliness under the shitfall. Crazily far thoughts proposed themselves as natural, and I almost looked away. Suddenly the apron slithered, and a whole calf's buttocks and hind legs, whose head and forefeet had been hidden from me by another cow, toppled out of its mother and collapsed in the ground. Leisurely, as she might be leisurely curious, she turned, pulling her streamers of blood tissue away from this lumpish jetsam. She nosed it where it lay like a stillbirth in its tissues. She began to nibble and lick. The jelly shook its head and nosed the air. She gave it the short, small, swallowed moo grunts hungry cows give when they stand suddenly among plenty. And that's March 21st, 1975. And Hughes has this remark. uh, This is from the preface of the book. Of how the poems came to be written and I guess not what he uh, how he wrote them but uh, what he didn't do with them in the rewriting process that is such um, a revelation and you have to be thankful I suppose that he had the presence of mind to realize what he did Uh, this is what it says at the end of the preface Uh, the pieces in this collection came about by the way It occurred to me from time to time that interesting things were happening on this farm that he had with his wife and his uh, father-in-law and that I ought to make a note of them, a note of the details in particular, partly with the idea of maybe using them at some future time in a piece of writing and partly to make a fleeting snapshot for myself of a precious bit of my life. Over those first years, as the evidence now shows me, that impulse came to me about forty times, and most of the results are here in this book. I should say something about the form and style in which these pieces were written. I set them down in what appears to be verse for a simple reason. In making a note about anything, if I wish to look closely, I find that I can move closer and stay closer. If I phrase my observations about it in rough lines. So these improvised verses are nothing more than this, my own way of getting reasonably close to what is going on, and staying close, and of excluding everything else that might be pressing to interfere with the watching eye. In a sense, the method excludes the poetic process as well. That is the trying to make it a self-conscious poem matching whatever, uh, whatever way of writing poems that that you uh, feel obliged to uh, turn words into is what he means there, the poetic process as well. This sort of thing had to be set down soon after the event. If I missed the moment, which meant letting a night's sleep intervene before I took up a pen, I could always see quite clearly what had been lost. By the next day, the processes of, quote, memory and the poetic process had already started. Though all the details were still absolutely fresh, most of them no longer seemed essential to the new pattern taking control. The pieces here, which begin to look a little more like, quote, poems, mark the occasion where I had missed the mark. In this way. He does not want them to look or sound like polished pieces or intended pieces of poetry. Um, I regarded them, he says, as casual journal notes and made no attempt to do anything with them until one day a magazine editor asked me for a poem. Thinking I might find something to work on, I then looked these pieces over and picked out the one called February 17th, which you will hear later. It didn't take me long to realize that I was in the position of a translator. Whatever I might make of this passage, I was going to have to destroy the original. Whatever that is, if he wanted to edit it down or do something uh, poetic with it. And what was original here, he says, was not some stranger's poem, but the video and surviving voice track of one of my own days, a moment of my life that I did not want to lose. I then saw that all the other entries, even the more diffuse, still carried that same souvenir bloom for me. Altering any word felt like retouching an old home movie with new bits of fake original voice and fake original actions. I put, th- I put them together for my wife as a memorial to her father. Let's see here, yeah, I put them together with my wife as a memorial to her father. So you can see what, uh, how these things happened and why they sound the way they do, and I think that's why they uh, impress me so much. Before we get to February 27th, there's another poem here that's simply called Ravens, and that is, that is another one that is new here that I didn't read last time. And it's worth hearing this out loud for the first time here. Uh, Ravens. As we came through the gate to look at the few new lambs on the skyline of lawn smoothness, a raven bundled itself into air from midfield and slid away under hard glistenings, low and guilty. Sheep nibbling, kneeling to nibble the reluctant nibbled grass. Sheep staring, their jaws pausing to think, then chewing again, then pausing. Over there, a new lamb just getting up, bumping its mother's nose as she nibbles the sugar coating off it, while the tattered banners of her triumph swing and drip from her rear end. She sneezes and a glim of water flashes from her rear end. She sneezes again and again till she's emptied. She carries on investigating her new present and seeing how it works. Over here is something else, but you are still interested in that new one and its new spark of voice and its tininess. Now over here, where the Raven was, is what interests you next. Born dead twisted like a scarf, a lamb of an hour or two. Its insides, the various jellies and, and crimsons and transparencies and threads and tissues, pulled out in straight lines, like tent ropes from its upward belly, opened like a lamb wool slipper. The fine anatomy of silvery ribs on display, and the cavity, the head, also emptied, through the eye sockets, the woolly limbs swathed in birth yoke, and impossible to tell now which in all this field of quietly nibbling sheep was its mother. I explained that it died being born. We should have been here to help it, so it died being born. And did it cry, you cry? I picked up the dangling, greasy weight by the hoofs, soft as dog's pads, that had trodden only womb water, and its raven-drawn strings dangle and trail, its loose head joggles, and did it cry, you cry again? Its two-fingered feet splay in their skin between the pressures of my fingers and thumb. And there is another, just born, all black, splaying its tripod, inching its new points towards its mother, and testing the note it finds in its mouth. But you have eyes now, only for the tattered bundle of throwaway lamb. Did it cry, you keep asking, in a three-year-old, field-wide, piercing persistence? Oh, yes, I say, it cried. Though this one was lucky, insofar as it made the attempt into a warm wind, and its first day of death was blue and warm, the magpies gone quiet with domestic happiness, and skylarks not worrying about anything, and the blackthorn budding confidently, and the skyline of hills, after millions of hard years, sitting soft. And that's April 15th, 1974. And now we come to uh, one of the great poems. Uh, This is February 17th, and indeed it is dated February 17th, 1974. And instead of me reading it, because Hughes is such a great reader of his own poetry, let's hear how Hughes reads this poem.
1: A lamb could not get born. Ice wind out of a downpour, dishclout sunrise. The mother lay on the mudded slope. Harried, she got up, and the blackish lump bobbed at her back end under her tail. After some hard galloping, some maneuvering, much flapping of the backward lump head of the lamb looking out, I caught her with a rope, laid her, head uphill, and examined the lamb a blood ball, swollen tight in its black felt, its mouth gaps quashed crooked, tongue stuck out, black-purple, strangled by its mother. I felt inside, past the noose of mother flesh, into the slippery, muscled tunnel, fingering for a hoof, right back to the porthole of the pelvis. But there was no hoof. He had stuck his head out too early, and his feet could not follow. He should have felt his way, tiptoe, his toes tucked up under his nose for a safe landing. So I kneeled, wrestling with her groans. No hand could squeeze past the lamb's neck into her interior to hook a knee. I roped that baby head and hauled till she cried out and tried to get up, and I saw it was useless. I went two miles for the injection and a razor, sliced the lamb's throat strings, levered with a knife between the vertebrae, and brought the head off to stare at its mother, its pipe sitting in the mud with all earth for a body then pushed the next stump right back in. And as I pushed, she pushed. She pushed crying, and I pushed gasping. And the strength of the birth push and the push of my thumb against that wobbly vertebrae were deadlock, a two-fro futility, till I forced a hand past and got a knee. Then, like pulling myself to the ceiling with one finger hooked in a loop, timing my effort to her birth-push groans, I pulled against the corpse that would not come. Till it came, and after it, the long, sudden, yoke-yellow parcel of life in a smoking slither of oils and soups and syrups, and the body lay borne the
0: hacked-off head. It's worth looking at the, the the other comment that he mentions in his uh, preface where he's talking about this countryside as well, this um, area of uh, Devonshire. This is what he has to say very quickly here. Uh, buried in their deep valleys in undateable cob-walled farms, hidden not only from the rest of England, but even from each other, connected by the inexplicable. Devonshire, high-banked, deep-cut lanes that are more like a defense maze of burrows. these old Devonians lived in a time of their own. It was common to hear visitors say, everything here's in another century. But what they really meant, maybe, was that all past centuries were still very present here wide open, unchanged, unexorcised, and potent enough to overwhelm any stray infiltrations of modernity. The farmers lived lightly in the day and the year, but heavily in that long backward perspective of their ancient landscape and their homes. The breed was so distinct, so individualized and all of a piece, they seemed to be almost a separate race. I could believe they were still that Celtic tribe the Romans had known as the Dumnoni, the people of the deep valleys, a confederacy of petty kings hidden in their strongholds that were only just beginning to emerge out of the old oak forest. And there you have it. Um, What is the next poem here? Only two more poems, actually, and then we will uh, get another comment. Um, We will hear Hughes himself talking about uh, this book of poems. This is called uh, Birth of Rainbow. This morning blue vast clarity of March sky, but a blustery violence of air and a soaked overnight, new-painted look to the world. The wind coming off the snowed moor in the south, razorish, heavy-bladed and head-cutting, off snow-powdered ridges, flooded ruts shook. Hoof puddles flashed, a daisy mud-plastered unmixed its head from the mud. The black and white cow on the highest crest of the round ridge stood under the end of a rainbow head down licking something full of the painful wind and the pouring haze of the rainbow ignored she was licking her gawky black calf collapsed wet fresh from the womb blinking his eyes in the low morning dazzling washed sun black wet as a collie from a river, as she licked him, finding his smells, learning his particularity. A flag of bloody tissue hung from her back end, spreading and shining, pink-fleshed and raw, it flapped and coiled in the unsparing wind. She positioned herself, uneasy as we approached, nervous small footwork on the hoof-ploughed drowned sod of the ruined field. She made uneasy low noises, and her calf, too, with his staring whites, mooed the full clear calf note, pure as woodwind, and tried to get up, tried to get his cantilever front legs in operation, lifted his shoulders, hoisted to his knees, then hoisted his back end and lurched forward on his knees and crumpling ankles, sliding in the mud and collapsing, plastered. She went on licking him. She started eating the banner of thin, raw flesh that spinnakered from her rear. We left her to it, blobbed antiseptic on to the sodden blood dangle of his muddy birth cord, and left her inspecting the new smell. The whole southwest was black as nightfall, trailing squall smokes hung over the moor, leaning and whitening towards us. And then the world blurred and disappeared in 45-degree hail and a gate-jerking blast. We got to cover, left the god, the calf, and his mother. And that's the 19th of March, 1974. And it's interesting here, find the page here. In a letter to his friend, uh, Keith Sagar, let's see when it was written, in April of 1977. So this would have been even earlier than the, about uh, more than 10 years earlier, than the um, parts of the preface that I read from. Uh, Ted Hughes had this to write about these pieces to his friend uh, and critic, uh, Keith Sagar. He says that they are pieces from a verse diary that I've kept from time to time. It's a casual way of getting down the details without bothering about making a poem. Quite often they come out as passages that I can't alter in any way at all for the better. They're old-fashioned and all that, but I don't know how else. I could get what they get. They can only be done right on the spot pretty well. If I leave it more than a week, the thing becomes a more conventional sort of poem with all sorts of other intrusive requirements to be satisfied. And you'll notice in the very last thing that I play here that um, what he says in the preface, what he just said to his friend, and what he says in the interview that I'll play at the end, um, he is repeating himself and saying the same thing in different ways. And you get to see an example there as well of just how we make our own stories, I suppose, um, how we tell our own tales, how we make our own explanations of things. Before we get to the last poem, I forgot to mention this is Hughes's note for Birth of a Rainbow. He has notes for probably a dozen of the poems, and this is one of the ones that I really liked. About Birth of Rainbow, Hugh says this, What I sharply remember about this piece was how nearly I let it pass, like many other curious moment. That timing, the cow dropping the calf just as we set eyes on her, after we had watched her well into darkness the night before, was almost as peculiar as the fact that she gave birth under the end of a rainbow. And thinking about it that night, I pushed myself out of bed to make the note, knowing that by the next day, I would for sure have lost the authentic fingerprints of the day itself. I recall too how, as I came to the close, Robert Frost's line, something has to be left to God, strayed into my head, and how I made a quick bow around that, to tie the piece up, a quick bow around that, to tie the piece up. And it'll be called the calf rainbow. It's not all about uh, the death of these animals and the brutality of the landscape. Sometimes the animal survives. But as we know, uh, the, the book is dedicated to his father-in-law. And, um, and this last poem is one about his father-in-law named... Uh, Jack Orchard, is that right? Yes. This is a great poem, uh, and it has uh, uh, the perfect title for it. It's just called A Monument. Um, I think in the very first poem, the one about the rain, uh, there's just the mention of us, or the two of us, um, sinking stakes into the ground. And this is another poem about Hughes and his father-in-law doing this, or just his father-in-law on his own. Uh, doing this work up until the very end. So what I'll do here, I'll read this poem, A Monument, and then immediately after that will just be an excerpt from an interview that Hughes gave about this collection, talking about uh, the book as a whole. And that will be it for tonight. This is A Monument. Your burrowing, gasping struggle in the knee-deep mud of the copse ditch where you cleared, with billhook and slasher, a path for the wire, the boundary deterrent, that memorable downpour, last-ditch, hand-to-hand battle with the grip of the swamped blue clay, to and fro the wallowing weight of the wire roll, your raincoat in tatters, face fixed at full effort. And the two fro lurching under posts and tools and pile-driver, while the rain glittered all the sapling purple birches and clothing deadened to sheet-lead, that appalling stubbornness of the plan among thorns will remain as a monument, hidden under tightening undergrowth, deep under the roadside car's glimpsed May beauty, to be discovered by some future owner, as a wire tensed through impassable thicket, a rusting limit, where cattle, pushing unlikely, query for two minutes at most in their useful life. And that is where I remember you, skull raked with thorns, sodden, tireless, hauling bedded feet free, floundering away to check alignments. Returning, hammering the staple into the soaked steak oak. A careful tattoo, precise to the tenth of an inch. Under December downpour, mid-afternoon, dark as twilight. Using your life
1: up. The pieces I'm now going to read come from a journal I kept on and off over a number of years. Mostly they concern events on a farm, in the middle of Devon. Farming being the absorbing business it is, I've never written about it systematically. But occasionally, after some striking happening, I've goaded myself to set down the details. The idea of such notes is to get the details down fresh, to make an archive of such details that might someday supply material for something more considered. Like most journal keepers, however, I'm remiss. Idleness isn't the only obstacle. Very often, what stands in the way looks like conscience. Over several years, up to collecting these pieces, I made only 30 or so entries. They're written in rough verse. To begin with, I use the ordinary journal prose, a shorthand sort of jotted details, relying on these things to bring the memory back. Then I happened to write one in rough verse, and at once discovered something that surprised me. In verse, not only did I seem to move at once deeper and more steadily into reliving the experience, but every detail became much more important. I experimented, switching to and fro between verse and prose, and it was a curious thing to note the physiological change in myself at the switchover. After that, I stuck to verse. The pieces make no claim to be poems of any kind. When I wrote them, as I say, I had no thought of ever publishing them. And it wasn't until a year or two ago when someone asked me for a pastoral poem and I went back to these entries to see if I could dig up anything that might lend itself to reshaping into a poem that I discovered what had happened. It wouldn't be too difficult to take a passage such as these are, assault it with technical skills, and make of it a reasonably acceptable poem in one of any number of styles. And my first idea in the poem I chose was just to tighten it up, try to find better words, and so on. What I discovered immediately was that no matter what I did, I destroyed the thing I most valued, the fresh, simple presence of the experience which, since it was my own, I didn't want to lose. So I let them lie in their rags and tatters,